0: All right. Hey, Trev. Good to see you, mate. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? You good? Yeah, yeah, good. No, all right. Now, for those of you that are watching this, I'm, I'm back with my good friend, Trev. And today we're going to be talking about the burning question that seems to be on everyone's lips at the moment, which is when can we resume restraint training? Because I keep getting asked that question literally daily, if not multiple times a day from trainers saying, well, we're under pressure to resume restraint training. You know, is it safe to resume restraint training? You know, what's the advice and guidance out there that, that uh, we can follow with regards to resuming restraint training? And the short answer is, there's not a lot of advice and guidance out there that says you can resume restraint training. That's the first thing. But uh, let's look at a couple of things on here, because Trevor and I have been through a few things. Let's put my teeth in. So this is an email or part of an email that that I received uh, this morning, in fact. And it said, I've been asked to deliver a small workshop on hands-on perspective, but due to the current corona pandemic, I find myself apprehensive with regard to advising officers on applications that could be deemed as a high risk. I feel the SAA are dragging their heels on this one, but until something is final, my mind is telling me to refrain from any hands-on contact. These are my issues. Should all physical contact cease until the SAA makes an announcement? Are existing techniques under review, meaning as trainers, meaning as trainers will, may all need to be, Retrained, and that's how it was pasted in. So it's not my spelling error on this. Our current SAPI techniques deemed to be no longer applicable. And you know, this is the kind of questions we, we get asked. And I, I bounced this off to the SA, and, and to be fair to the SA, they came back very quickly, mm. and they said, "We have issued this, the statement below to all awarding organisations via email on the 13th of May to 2020." The SA are referring to the industry in respect of coronavirus. the up-to-date guidance provided by HM government which can be found at the web link there and I'm sure most of you've seen the guidance and if you haven't I can bring the web in fact I'll bring the web link up in a minute and and I'll I'll show you Uh, bear with me on that one there I'll copy that it is a matter for each organization to follow this guidance and make their own assessment as to what they are able to do the SI are therefore unable to provide specific guidance in respect of a specific awarding or training provider this is also covered on page 1617 in the FAW on our website, and I'll show you that now. So I'm just going to stop this, and I'm going to now share the web page. So this is the SA document that they're referring to in that email that went out on the 30th of April. And if I scroll down to pages 16 and 17, you'll see what they say. And that is basically here. We encourage you to follow government guidance at all times with regard to social distancing. It is likely this will mean most training activity will stop refer to your awarding organisation for any clarification. So that's fundamentally what the SIA is saying. Uh, They're saying that um, it should stop until further notice but they're also saying and and I think quite rightly so it's it's not for them to tell organisations when to start training or not you know that's not their job it's the responsibility of the organisation itself because that will come down to their own assessment of risk. I mean what's your view on that Trev?
1: Well I think certainly a couple of things for us to think about there Mark. First in the first instance from a from a compliance perspective, they put the information out there. And whilst I take your point that, you know, it's not for them to dictate, you know, when, when when it should or shouldn't, when it should resume. But I think certainly the fact they put that document out there, then I think there needs to be a further publication. Yeah. Because at the minute that's saying that no physical intervention should take place. On the basis as well that the government, whilst we've got a, a return to work, but there's still issues around the, contradictory issues around social distancing. Yeah. So if people are going to resume physical intervention training or training uh, which contradicts social distancing, then I think we have to look at the issues around needs and urgency for that. So I think at the moment, um, unless people can put a very stringent view as to why there's a need for that training, then I think we should be on the basis of no physical intervention training at this point.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll just bring up the link to this document here, actually. I mean, most of you, I'm presuming, will have seen it. but I'll bring it up anyway here because this is the link they're referring to here, which is mm-hmm. basically the gov.uk yeah. uh, webpage on COVID-19. Yeah. Um, and it goes through various things here, but I can tell you now I've read through this. And there is nothing at all in there that relates to whether restraint training should stop or, or shouldn't stop. Mm-hmm. So it's going to come down to the assessment of risk at the end of the day. Yeah. And that's the main thing. Now I just want to, I want to bring on something else, actually, which is quite interesting that's that's come uh, come up on my radar. So forgive me this. I I was emailed a Mm. copy of a report with me. Let me just bring that one up. Can you you see that, Trev?
1: Yeah, I can see it fine. Thanks. Right.
0: This was a CQC report. And again, I received an email about this asking if I could give some clarification on it. I think I sent this to you, Trev, as well. So it's a fair old report. It's for Sheffield Health and Social Care NHS Foundation Trust. But what I was asked for my comment on was this aspect of approved restraint. Now, if I just do a find on here, you'll see that the words here, non-approved restraint, for example, crop up at least five times. And it says um, there were some pockets of culture within the organisation which was not caring and compassionate. This included that staff had used non-approved restraint techniques uh, on one ward. And if we go on through here, you can see that staff had used non-approved restraint techniques in another ward, acute wards. And staff had used non-approved restraint techniques with some patients. And the point is, this word non-approved, restraint techniques, keeps propping up. So I took the liberty of asking CQC, what is an approved restraint technique? And I I won't share the actual email with you, because I I need to go back to them and clarify a few points. But basically, the the crux of the email, uh, based on the question I asked, is that um, CQC doesn't have a list of approved techniques. Uh, or systems that's what they told me they also said that uh, CQC inspectors are not expected to advise providers about uh, the use of restraint techniques they should or shouldn't use Uh, they also say that CQC inspectors do not take uh, undertake any physical restraint training and they don't receive any training about the appropriateness of restraint training so if the long and short of it is is a CQC inspector is not trained or competent this is their own words Mm -hmm. and they shouldn't be actually advising on the use of restraint. So that's, that's a really interesting one there. So to get back to the, the crux of this, you know, everyone's waiting for someone else to, to tell them what to do. But the, the responsibility rests with the organization. So, you know, if you're watching this and your organization is thinking about resuming restraint training or not resuming restraint training, then it's about the balancing of harms. And this is something that your risk assessment has to reflect Uh, And I'll put the wording in there for you because it basically says the balance that organisations must deal with is the balance between the need to train staff to meet the operational requirement to keep staff and others safe, Mm -hmm. based on the evidence of the risk posed by not training them, Mm -hmm. balanced against the need to comply with the duty of care owed to staff and others in terms of their health, safety and welfare whilst at work, whilst implementing government guidelines on social distancing and non-essential touching, where necessary, to reduce the risk of transmission of the COVID-19 virus. I mean, would, would you... Add anything to that,
1: Trev? Um, yeah, I think to that, I'd just add, um, I think if we look at two categories, one, emergency workers and non-emergency workers.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: yeah so, so I think, you know, non-emergency workers, then it really is a big question as to why there'd be a need for physical intervention training. You mm-hmm. know, the what-if question, we could do, you know, we've done that to death. Emergency workers, I would still have, you know, some tiered approach towards those who the organisation risk reviews are most uh, liable to maybe get involved in challenging behavior
0: Yeah, it's interesting because I, th- I think we did a video on this as well. We've done so many videos now, but <laughs> someone was claiming that their organisation was saying that restraint training is essential training. Did, we, did. did we, we cover did. that before? We did. Yes, we did. Yeah, we did, didn't we? And I think the question we asked was, "Will show us where mm-hmm. they've defined or come to the conclusion based on the assessment of risk that that it is essential." But um, this, have we finished on this one Trevor do you got anything else you want to no, add? No, but on?
1: I just go back. Just stay. Stay on this slide. Just go one back though. Remember the non-approved. And just oh, yeah, yeah. almost yeah. like a summary perspective, and you know and because uh, the three things that kind of sprung to mind as you were reading that was one was approved by who, yeah yeah, or use by who, yeah, upon who are they going to use those techniques on, yes you know, but it, in summary, what I'm trying to say isn't it who's approving these techniques and why yeah, yeah, yeah sorry yeah
0: <laughs> no absolutely, and it's it's like you know I used to live in West London, and I used to drive over the 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 flyover going into, into into london itself and there used to be a jaguar garage on on the side there and they used to have a big billboard mm-hmm. and it said new and approved jaguars <laughs> and i always thought wow i'm gonna buy an, i couldn't afford a new one, so i'm gonna go and buy an approved <laughs> one so i went in there i said i'd like to look at one of your approved jags and they went yeah yeah great you know show me around. i mm-hmm. said how's it approved and they went well we've approved it <laughs> we've, we've done our checks i went so basically what you've done is you've checked the car and you've approved it they went yeah and it got me because I nearly <laughs> bought the damn thing on the basis mm-hmm. it was approved. So it's an interesting one when we get, get into that area. But here's one I think uh, I'm going to let you take the lead on this because this is um, something now that's that's big. And I'll I'll go to the web page that, that this comes from because this, this dropped in my email inbox this morning. So bear with me. And I'm going to let Trev talk about this. So he's going to share that there. Yeah. Right. This is... Um, from chancery lane and for those who don't know chancery lane it's where all the lawyers and barristers live in london basically all the good ones anyway um, i shouldn't say that because there's good ones live elsewhere of course but chancery lane is well known for being a legal center and this is uh, a post they brought out about covid19 claims and personal protective equipment so trev i'll let you talk about this because you've done a bit of homework on this haven't you
1: uh, thanks, homework. Oh. <laughs> Indeed, I had a chance to hours. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, a couple of points which came up from it, though. And uh, for me, I mean, firstly and foremost are the duty care issues, which we've covered, you know, and people are f- uh, very familiar and aware with. Yeah. But the, the really way to get into were, two. I think, two very key points to bring out in this report. Uh, secondary and indirect exposure. You yeah. Know, they're key areas we need to, you know, we need, everybody needs to be aware of, you know, the issues about exposure, they certainly use a case example here. That's uh, near, isn't it? Yeah, uh, yeah, sorry, thank you. Well done, yeah, thanks. Yeah, so we can see the, uh, the Marjorie Sun versus Roberts case itself. Yeah. And if I just read just the introductory element of that out, if you don't mind. Sure. You know, but it may be, you know, a factory, you know, it talks about a factory worker in Leeds, you know, had been allowed, uh, in terms of my apologies, had allowed such large quantities of asbestos due to escape from local children.
0: Asbestos, asbestos dust, or, you mean? Yes,
1: yeah, asbestos dust. My apologies, sorry, yeah. my Thank you. Actually, what they were talking about it fundamentally was, sorry, thank you. A combination of a worker in his coveralls going home, yeah. Obviously, removing the coveralls at home, and then his wife was actually then, you know, washing those coveralls with themselves was one factor of it. Yeah. Mm. In addition to that, around the exposure. In addition to that, the asbestos dust you know carrying over the boundary of the work environment in itself and it talks about here rural, which is you know either outside full-time employees so members of the public in this yeah. instance child themselves there or the boundary walls because when we look at you know we, i think we touched on this in previous talks you know with doors uh, with door supervisors where does your boundary area of responsibility lie that's right and certainly here from terms of the secondary exposure elements of it well you know and the, the, the ruling was on appeal was the fact that yeah, you know, the asbestos dust, it was known that it would carry beyond the boundaries of the wall and therefore the liability fell back with the factory workers, the factory themselves, the factory owners. Yeah. So I think certainly from this to this report here, and we come back to COVID, you know, and we've spoken about this before. From a cost regulation perspective, there are other, regu- other regulations and legislations and codes of practice. But if we look at it from a cost perspective, the fact that it is a virus, yeah we know that even you know whether a people have been tested or b people are asymptomatic themselves yeah and whether the exposure was in the workplace or whether it's been caught contracted to or traveling to or from work or from family members mm. yeah. there are a lot of fundamental issues around returning safely to the workplace and managing infection control issues and areas there well, we, we had a
0: conversation about this, didn't we? Where, uh, I, again, I don't know if I've done this in a video, so if you're listening to this and I've said this again, forgive me, but I'm 59, I'm allowed a bit of dementia. But I was contacted by someone who's got a care home, and they said that they wanted to start training because they need to do training for their staff because they've got one person that needs restraining. And they said, and we're COVID secure. Yeah. I said, well, how can you, how, tell me how you're COVID secure. And they said, well, it's only myself and my staff that actually go in to the home. Um, and we're all okay. I said, well, do your staff travel to and from work? And are they interacting with other people outside work? And do they go shopping? And they went, oh, yeah, yeah, of course. So, well, how do you know that you're not transmuting and transmitting this virus in certain forms, like indirect or direct contact with other people? And they hadn't even considered that part, you know. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this is an interesting area.
1: Well, and I think as well, uh, and um, sorry, oh, yeah, commercial prayer thought, but everything sorry. isn't good. To the SIA documents, you know, 30th of April publication date? Yeah. You know, and once they say it's not that you know it's not their place to direct who or when should do how and what mm. themselves but I think the fact that they make reference to the government direction guidance on this you know and at that level guidance is pretty much mandatory isn't it at that level yeah you know, themselves. so I think the fact then that you know people are returning to the workplace but still still consistently social issue, you know, social distance is a critical factor themselves then you know We have to come back to what is the basis then for people needing to actually conduct physical intervention training.
0: I think the thing, just to go back on the mandatory bit that you mentioned there, I think it's mandatory in in respect to the fact that people should comply with it, because it's the most common sense thing you could do. It's not mandatory as it's been issued under an Act of Parliament. I think that's that's, that's the, the thing there. But this is interesting here, This about PPE. You know, I picked this up you know um, about the breach of duty of care and whether or not adequate PPE is available has been provided in a particular workplace as a matter of fact which of course will be addressed in evidence. Mm-hmm. The adequacy of the government guidance and respect of issues will, will no doubt be judged with reference to the WHO advice and to PHE's own guidance and they go on down here to talk about the the failure of the PPE and the government's failure mm-hmm um in testing the pp that brought him from turkey for example turkey. I like, find, find the it's thing hangers
1: in heathrow somewhere didn't it yeah um
0: there it is yeah um, but, yeah on May the made a 6 reported that four hundred thousand gallons gowns ordered from and supplied by turkey did not meet nhs safety standards were being returned having never left the heathrow hangar so it's you know what do you make of this this that's come out from the chambers
1: what this document itself yeah I, I think it's somewhat It's a document everybody should be reading because, as you know, as all companies, organisations start to return back to work, then these the issues that are highlighted here comply. uh, from, you know, are in effect for them, aren't they? You know, they're going now yeah. from you know. The, let's just say the workplace has been mothballed, not literally. Issues that I, metaphorically. Yeah. yeah. So looking I mean, it, at it, it, I, the area? Sorry, Matt. Is the area sterile? yeah then we're putting in the infection control and prevention measures then we're looking at the pp then we're looking on training on top of that
0: yeah yeah no it's going to be interesting but you know i keep going back to this point that the law's not been suspended you know it's <laughs> all sad. amended all redacted yeah um i think this was the interesting bit for me down the bottom here though and uh guy you know you you can find this link or i'll i'll, I'll put a link to it It says claimants may even seek to claim that they have suffered psychological injury associated with the increased risk of contracting COVID-19 caused by inadequate PPE, even if they do not subsequently go on to acquire the disease at all. But it is anticipated Mm -hmm. that the courts would seek to regulate the scope of such claims taking a rigorous approach to causation and or remoteness remoteness of damage. So that's quite an interesting statement that they've made in their their article there, because it's saying that you, you can sue for negligence on the basis that you've not been given the kit, whether you've got the... The virus or not
1: well i think there's been enough discussions haven't there you know if we think about education and children returning to schools yeah you know without getting into you know the wrongs or rights of that but also on the back of that though we've got the issues haven't we about the mental health well being not only the children returning to school but mm-hmm. the parents yeah you know and from the pressures around homeschooling
0: absolutely yeah. and it's an interesting one because you know i i i've got this blog post here which you can all go to if you want to see it it's it's uh, on the blog site i mean if you go to our blog here then just click on the blog and then it's the top one there because I put it up today because uh, I knew we were doing this mm. um, it's loading now when you go to this blog post here there's a link on the bottom here and click on that link and it will take you through to the LinkedIn article and this is something I posted on LinkedIn when someone else was asking about resuming restraint training and what was brilliant about this was all the people that I respect in the restraint community you know came in and added their, their knowledge and their expertise. I mean, Pete Turner, hugely respected. They put their comments on here, you know, Jim Snipe yep. is on there, Abu's on there. You know, yep. th- these are good guys, you know, Adam Gales put some stuff on there, you know, Gary Furkins, brilliant people, all well-respected and good standing members of the restraint training community. And if you're thinking about resuming restraint training based on what you've heard so far, go and find this post on LinkedIn. And The way to do it, the simple way to do it is go to our blog post here go to the blog and click on that and and then the link at the bottom they will take you through to linkedin because virtually everyone on there with the exception of i think one person is saying don't do it you know not not in this current climate um you know particularly when you've got the likes of this hanging hanging over our heads right now so yeah interesting times mate interesting times anything else you want you want to cover there trev
1: No, no, nothing particularly. No, because I think, you know, um, only to echo what we, you know, the government have put out, you showed the government guideline there. But again, just very succinctly, you know, prevention, infection prevention control measures, PPE and training and staff to speak up if they're unsure about the training and PPE they've been given.
0: Yeah, I think I'll go, just go back to this point, because I just want to make this clear, you know, for people. It comes down to the assessment of risk. It's mm. no point waiting to see if the SIA or NHS England are going to come out with anything to do on restraint, because at the end of the day, it's down to each individual organisation to do their assessment of risk. And that's this balancing of harms, you know. And if there is a huge need to train people because the risk of staff being assaulted or the risk of needing to restrain someone is greater than the risk of catching COVID, then that's what should be reflected in your risk assessment. Mm. However, if the risk of needing to use restraint is minimal compared to the risk of catching the virus and spreading the infection, then you, you don't train. You know That's the simple balancing thing. But one thing I would say, just and this, this is a real point of concern for me because I've seen a few risk assessments. Where people have said, I've been sent this risk assessment, it's okay to train. And when I look at the risk assessment, it's nothing more than someone justifying the bias to want to train and to put it on paper without doing a proper risk assessment. you know. And that's the dangerous bit for me. So make sure whoever does the risk assessment, and if you are given a risk assessment, someone says, here's our risk assessment, ask to see the credentials of the person who did, who done it, because they have to be a properly qualified and or competent person. You know, not Joe Bloggs, who's you know, never done any health and safety training, never done any restraint training, never done any risk assessments. That's, that's not the person that does risk assessments. And even if the person is a qualified health and safety professional, if they don't know anything about restraint or the implications of the dynamics and, and the, the, the risk of cross-infection from restraint and all the other things that go with it, they need to be liaising with people that do. You know, that's the important thing. Have uh, you got anything to add on
1: that, Trev? I'll just echo one point you said there, because I think it's very important. Risk assessments must be carried out by a qualified and or competent person can't stress that
0: enough oh absolutely and i found this digging through my old archives today as well this was uh, anthony scrivener qc this was 20 years ago he said this <laughs> when he was a keynote speaker at the annual simmons safety lecture at the institution of civil engineers and the lecture was entitled corporate and personal manslaughter where the offense is let the great axe fall and this was his opening statement he said although in this short address i'll refer to the government's new proposals for corporate manslaughter I would wish to drive home a clear message to all of those involved in the management of companies. Even without these reforms, there is an unstoppable movement towards using the full force of the criminal law against companies and executives, forming the management of companies where death or injury is caused by serious negligence. They are out to get you, and that is the clear message you should take back with you from this meeting to your boardroom. If you ignore the trend, then you do so at your peril. That's quite a, and that's uh, yeah, that's a punch in the head statement, isn't it? You know, from, from a very well qualified and respected, you know, Queen's Counsel or silk, and he was he's saying even you know without thinking about charges under corporate manslaughter, you've got all the legislation under health and safety and anything else that can come after you with. And we've been through this on previous videos. Yes. The HSE, the TUC, and the CBI have issued a joint statement on this now about you know not breaching social distancing guidelines. Um, and they said they will they will you know look to enforce if people do so i suppose that the long and short of it is you know the question that's on everyone's lips is it safe to go back and, and resume restraint, restraint training right now the answer is quite simple it depends on your risk assessment don't look to me for an answer don't look for, to Travel for an answer don't look to god for an answer or the sia or the nhs it's down to your organization who must do the assessment of risk, which must be done as trebled again echoed. And I'm going to sound like a broken record by a suitably qualified and or competent person. That's the key, you know, because when that great ax falls, as Andrew Scrivener put it, they're going, to, they're going to want to see that document. That'll be one of many documents they'll ask to see. Great stuff, mate. Anything from you, Trev?
1: No, thanks very much, Mark. Enjoy chatting again, mate. And hopefully people are informed and we've kind of get somebody to raise some questions about this.
0: Yeah, No, guys, if you've got any questions, pop them in the comments box below wherever this video is posted, Facebook or LinkedIn or wherever you see it, or send Trevor I a message, you know, via whichever social media channel. Now, I'm becoming good at WhatsApp now. I'll get messages on WhatsApp. I've never used WhatsApp. But, um, yeah. you know, I'm learning. <laughs> all right. Listen, thanks ever so much, Trevor. Brilliant, mate. Uh, I'll speak to you shortly. Yeah. Guys, thank you for watching. For those of you that are watching, I hope it's of help. That's all we're trying to do here is just, you know, put out information as best we can to try and give you something that you can work from. All right, guys. Take care.
1: Take care.